Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's episode. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Annie Reiner about her book, Beyond and Being, Passion and the Creative Mind. Dr. Reiner is a senior faculty member at the Psychoanalytic Center of California. She is a po- Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's episode. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Annie Reiner about her book, Beyond and Being, Passion and the Creative Mind. Dr. Reiner is a senior faculty member at the Psychoanalytic Center of California. She is a poet, playwright, and author-illustrator of children's books. Her psychoanalytic writings have been published in many journals and anthologies. Recently, she edited a Festschrift collection of essays about the work of James Grotstein, published in 2015 by Karnak. She maintains a private practice in Beverly Hills. Welcome to the program, Dr. Reiner. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And can you tell us how this book came about? What led you to write it? Um, sure. I uh, knew Ben briefly, when he was um, teaching and living in Los Angeles. And so I've been interested in him ever since then, 70s. Um, but his, and his significance is obviously very widespread throughout the psychoanalytic world, all over the world. And his work is very revolutionary. And the most revolutionary part of it, I think, uh, and the most mysterious is his concept of O, which if people aren't familiar with that, it <laughs> can't be described uh, in a minute, and it can't actually ever be described totally. But it, it represents, as he puts it, absolute truth, ultimate reality, the infinite, a transcendent state. So... Um, while he sees it as being sought as the central psychoanalytic perspective for doing psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. uh, and in my opinion, it's the hub of all of his theories, many analysts still see O as a sort of tangent or uh, that they either just don't understand or that they think is evidence of his having gone round the bend, doesn't make sense to them, it's a, it's a sort of mystical state he's talking about. And so this book really was to talk about O. And so it's called Being and Being, because O basically represents a, a state of being, which again is difficult to describe. But as I started writing it, I thought, all right, this is a little bit of a fool's errand, perhaps, because I'm trying, I'm writing a whole book trying to describe what is essentially indescribable, this state of being or the truth. Um, and at least it's indescribable in terms of uh, verbal 
or rational language. So I found that if I used metaphors or similarities to literature and poetry and art and philosophy, that I could try to give readers a way to feel or experience the meaning beyond behind Bean's ideas rather than just the theoretical aspect. So it's to, it's it was in order to try to to, to give an experiential uh, feeling of O. Okay, that helps me understand what I was trying to think about how to how to talk about how I, I experienced reading the book, which I think I was I jotted down some notes here. It was like food for the soul, and then I thought, well. I guess it means it was aesthetically satisfying. But maybe what you're saying about this, um, giving the reader an experience and a feeling, that's what I found so refreshing about the book is because I guess I, was, I wasn't just having intellectual ideas. I was feeling things as I was reading this book. Um, and so I really like that part about it. I read it slowly because – not because it was so – difficult ideas but just because it felt like it was it would it was sinking in more by by kind of slowly taking it you know sometimes a few paragraphs at a time and then um, mm -hmm. come back to it um another experience i had was just how how helpful it was to me to see so clearly your your way of being an analyst um from this perspective of O to your patients. And I got a real sense of what, what that must be like to work that way. And it's, it's always helpful to those of us who are newer in this, this world to sort of get clear sense of how analysts work in the room with their patients. And there's some, some really great clinical material throughout the book. But um, before we get into some of that, maybe we'll come back to, you mentioned you met him in Los Angeles. What was Beyond doing in Los Angeles for a period of his life? Um, and yeah, maybe we'll start there. Yeah. Well, um, we have four analysts to thank for that. And uh, these were curious analysts who wanted to know more about uh, Melanie Klein, about her work. And so it was Jim Grotstein and I think Marv Berenstein, Berenson, Bernard Bale, and Arthur Malin. And they had put together a study group. They called themselves the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which I'm not exactly sure the reason, although it was rather apocalyptic, as it turns out, uh, Bean's coming to L.A. Um, but uh, so, and then they invited people like Bean and Rosenfeld and uh, Hannah Siegel to come in, in LA and um, to supervise analysts if they wanted supervision. And this was pretty popular. And, and then finally, they just invited uh, Bean along with, I think, uh, what was his name? A Ber a Ber Bernie Branshaft also. Uh, they invited Bean to to come work here and live here, and which he did, and he to do analysis, and which he did with uh, many people, um, and he liked it here because it reminded him, I guess, the weather, and certainly very different from England. It reminded him of where he grew up, which was in India, where he was born, and so um, he stayed 
for 12 years. And as I say, I was lucky enough to, I didn't have analysis with him because I didn't have the foresight to do that at the time. But um, I did uh, hear all his lectures and went uh, to meet with him to set up a, a seminar, a clinical seminar uh, privately. So that's what he was doing here. And so you actually sat and listened to him lecture and... What was that like? It was a real eye-opener. I mean, it really was. Different people had very, very different reactions to it. And the audiences could be, you know, anywhere from very energized to very, very rude and very hostile. (laughs) And that was mainly a lot of the um, Freudian analysts. And, uh, you know, they just... I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard it said, well, he's psychotic mm-hmm. because he he was frustrating in a way. But from my, from my point of view, I, found, I didn't blame him for being frustrating. I felt like he mm-hmm. was saying something. I didn't know what he was saying. I, really, I was very young myself, and I didn't really understand it. However, it had the ring of truth, mm-hmm. and I knew that I... N- needed to and wanted to understand it. And so I you know, I it took me a long time mainly having to do with personal growth and, you know, just getting to a deeper level to where I finally could understand what he was really saying. But there were a lot of there was a lot of hostility toward him. He would be um he was he would speak slowly. There were a lot of silences. And for me, it was like seeing his theories uh, sort of uh, demonstrated. Because if you think about his theory of container and contained, you could see it. You could see his mind uh, sort of searching for a way to contain a thought he was going to say, and he would take as long as he needed. Oh, so we had the audience had to kind of witness this. He was willing not to just read from prepared notes, but to actually... Oh, he never did. He never did. (laughs) Yeah. And also, the thing that really made people angry was they would ask questions. There would always be a lot of question and answer. But he wouldn't... He didn't want to give answers. He, He always said, and in our seminar, he said, we must keep our questions in good repair. So he was always much more about the questions and not about mm-hmm. the answers. And he didn't want to give answers because he felt people had to find them for themselves. So he would answer by way of uh, thoughts that he had. And they weren't direct answers very often because there weren't direct answers. And so, but people wanted answers, I think. So they, got, they, they were angry that he, you know, they didn't know if he was playing some sort of game but it wasn't that at all from my perspective. Yeah, I guess it's so frustrating when you either read something or go to hear somebody and you expect them to to be clear and they're not. And then you're, I guess, left with what to do with this, to become angry, to walk out, or to sit with or these to feelings. to be stimulated. I mean, that's what it was, <laughs> was stimulating. I mean, because it wasn't just that... What he really hated was people making him into someone with the answers, the expert, because he repeated and repeated, there are no, there's, you can't rely on an expert. Mm. 
If you're in a room with a patient, there's nothing to rely on but yourself. And that was really, you know, so he hmm. he pretty much uh, acted as he believed. And then, mm-hmm. so he wasn't going to tell you how. He was going to try to open up your mind to think for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a credit to you that you, I guess, listened to this ring of truth was enough to keep you, I don't know, in, receptive or trying to, to learn. <clears throat> um, and, but you find it with patients, too, that there are mm-hmm. certain patients who value the truth. They may not know it. They may not uh, even sometimes recognize it when they hear it, and they'll get mad. But, you know, there are people who have a sort of um, somewhere in them this this uh, regard for the truth. And so then you, you hear it. I don't know. You hear it sometimes like a distant bell, mm-hmm. like I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, your book is not like listening to a Beyond <laughs> lecture, because I don't know if I could have uh, got through the whole book. But um, yours, uh, you know, was a very different experience reading it. <clears throat> um, and I jotted down a few places since you talked about O in the beginning. What what is this O that I? Um, so I thought I'd just read them. Um, to give listeners a sense of some, a little bit of your writing and then what O is about. Um, a place of experiential awareness rather than judgment. Access to O depends upon a dreamlike state of mind. O represents the elusive metaphysical truths beyond the senses. The kind of thinking dependent upon a higher mental potential. Seems like a loss of self but is the experience of a more essential self that is capable of being in the timeless primitive mind, a kind of truth known to us on an instinctual level beyond conscious awareness. So these are just little, throughout the scattered throughout the book, sprinkled, I, I found where I'd underlined things like this, and I thought I'd kind of uh, read those. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say any more about O? Um, well, let's just first of all say whatever I say or anyone says about O will be inadequate because it is not attainable by verbal, rational, linear means. It's, you know, it's sort of, it's a dream state in a sense that one has to be in in order to access it and to, it's an intuitive state. But I do, I can add a couple other things. Um, And also this idea that you mentioned uh, where it seems like a loss of the self. Uh, Because it does. It is a loss of the ego. And Vian does talk about it as, you know, as dangerous in a way. Because he said, unless unless you've had your primitive mental states analyzed, don't do this. Don't try it at home, this idea of setting aside. So the means, let me just backtrack a second. The means of accessing this state being described as uh, suspending one's capacities for memory and desire and understanding. So you're not trying to understand anything. You're not trying to do anything. 
you're hopefully having a sort of clear mind. Um, and so it does feel like you set aside your ego and all that's familiar, which can feel very unnerving, but it, it, it's really much more, it's really closer to your, your real self. Um, but okay, so, but to put it simply, O is basically reality. It is what it is what is, but it's an infinite reality, sort of. And I know these words, they sound, they're, they're, they sound so difficult to uh, understand, and that's, as I said, because we can't understand it. And which is, to add, you know, the thing that I've done in here is to use uh, examples from literature and poetry and art and the reason I've done that is because you can't express it in words. So the artist may be able to show you with an image, or uh, a writer or a poet with also images. Um, but uh, so, but it it's it can't be known by our little finite minds. Uh, and Dean also describes it as non-sensuous. Oh, so what does that mean? It means it can't be experienced through your senses. It's not physical, it's metaphysical. So, for example, what what is a feeling? You can't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, someone can say, oh, I feel uh, happy. Well, where is that and what does that feel like? And patients themselves don't often know what the feeling is that they're having. So, because they are amorphous. Uh, you can't smell it, you can't hear it. Not directly, anyway. But, you know, on the other hand, what you're trying to get in a session is the manifestations of a feeling. So even to say you can't smell it, you know, I've had the experience where you smell something on the patient, and uh, you, you, it's hard to, it's something that they, you, they haven't emitted before. And so then you have to wonder, you know, what kind of com- communication is that? That they have this smell. Um, is it evidence of anxiety? Is it like a skunk where they're trying to attack someone or keep a predator away, keep the analyst, me, away? Is it an attempt to get inside of you, with, a, with you know, in your nose, inside of you, where they're part of you? It can be anything, and that's what we have to figure out. But the smell is not anxiety. Anxiety is transformed into that smell. Mm-hmm. And that's what Bean's talking about, that we have to see the transformations of um, the thing in itself, whatever the patient is, their reality mm-hmm. at that moment, will be manifested, transformed into various things within the session that we can feel, that we can, um, you know, observe you know, which is not O, but it's the manifestations of O. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you used the word metaphysical in it. It's making me think. I've always kind of shied away from that word. Word is something we use when we don't, I don't know, know what we're talking about. But if kind of the way you put it, it's it's what's beyond the senses. Um, so often we mistake, we think reality is what we experience with our senses, and yet science teaches us on, <laughs> that's actually a kind of a distorted picture of what 
that's not reality at all. Reality is something beyond that, that transcends, I guess, that sensual world. And that's, I guess, a, a way to think what is the metaphysical is that which is beyond the sense perceptions in which, which we confuse for reality. Exactly. And that is what Bian talks about. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. State that cannot be seen, but nonetheless, people, some people have a, a conviction that it exists. You know, even the mind itself. Where can you see that? You know, if you mm-hmm. open up a brain, do you mm-hmm. see the mind? Do you see mm-hmm. the? You know, you can't see it, can't touch it, but it's. It, you know, and and so in this vein. Um, Bean did talk about the mind as synonymous with the self or the personality or the soul sometimes, the spirit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's something that there that um, makes each person unique, and yet it's something you can't really see or, see or quantify. Yeah, which... <clears throat> Is making me think of that image you used of the the Hasayampa River, which, mm-hmm. as you describe it, I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> I'd love to see it, but in I guess Arizona, it's, yeah. So it, it's like really exists, huh? It's like this oh, river yeah. that apparently appears on the surface, but then disappears underground for a while, but then comes back. And so I guess that's a way of talking about how what we think of as ourself, I don't know, I guess that would be like the ego. Sometimes it's there, but in order to be um, more fully in touch, we need to somehow lose ourselves underground at some points in order to to come back as something new. Is that the, uh, more or less along yeah. the lines? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is why I find these metaphors um, useful. Um, see, like, for instance, let me think, um, uh, de Kooning, you know, the painter, mm-hmm. he once described, uh, he was talking about painting, and he said, when things are going well in his painting, when something's really happening, I feel like I'm slipping. And he said, then maybe I'll get a glimpse. Mm. He didn't say of what, but it's something like, oh, you get a glimpse of reality. Mm. Um, and, but it is that feeling of slipping. It's like you have to let go of what you know in order to en- engage in something that is new. So Gertrude Stein said it another way. She said... Uh, Something like we have no self when we're in the process of doing anything. So if you're really engaged in something wholeheartedly, mm. you don't have a self. It's it's this mm. other thing that takes over. You know, it's what some uh, artists or writers would talk about as automatic writing, um, where you just write and you don't really know what you're writing, but it makes sense. Or or even dreams. We dream at night. It has a meaning, apparently. And it's beyond us what the meaning is, even though we've dreamt it ourselves. We've created this thing with meaning when we're sound asleep. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of that state of mind. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But it is scary because, like, you hear about artists and uh, the fear of the blank canvas or the blank page for a writer. It's like you are suddenly in touch with the unknown. And that's really what we're talking about. Is do you dare to go someplace where you've never been so that you might find something new there? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so that brings us back to what you mentioned earlier, the famous dictum, I guess, that that the analyst should be without memory, desire, or understanding, which is kind of one of the first things people new to the psychoanalytic world as, as clinicians learn, and everybody can can say it. But I was interested how you you... I don't know if where where I have the quote, but I think you said that beyond, or you said it was. This is almost a dangerous place to go because it's it's the place of the regressed patient. You said, "Don't try this at home." <laughs> yeah, don't try this at home. So, well, uh, that's what he was saying. It's the it that it's it's very similar. What he said was, it's very similar to a state of regression of the ego. Yeah. So. Yeah, if you don't have a strong sense of yourself, then you can feel like you're losing yourself, when in fact you're just sort of setting it aside. So, yeah, this whole thing about memory and desire, everyone says it, and it's it's like it's gotten a little oversaturated. But what does it mean? Um, because he does say that is the state of mind that you need to be in to contact O. So... It isn't that it's it isn't just that it's challenging or that it's dangerous, but it is a discipline that allows one to cultivate this state. And so what do we mean by no memory? <laughs> Bean was also very funny. He had a very dry sense of humor. And so about this idea of no memory, he said having a bad memory is not enough. <laughs> so it takes more than that. But no memory is basically at that moment you're suspending it's not that you can't remember, but that you, because a lot of analysts have said, um, how can you have a session if you can't remember anything? Well, it's not that you can't remember or that you give up your memory. It's suspended so that you suspend that function in order to be in, this, in the present. But if you need your memory, if something comes to you, then that has come to you unbidden, and you'll remember whatever you need to know about what the patient said yesterday. Or, But if you go looking for it, that's a different usage of memory uh-huh. than if it just comes to you. So it's no memory, no thoughts of the past, in other words. No desire, which is no hopes for the future. Like in the session, oh, you're listening to the session, and you're thinking, I hope I come up with something. Or, you know, so any of that kind of thing takes you away from actually being with the patient. So you, mm-hmm. you have to, you ha- and no one can do this, really. It's a matter of disciplining yourself if you notice yourself being taken away to any of these places to try to bring yourself back to just listening. Mm-hmm. And it's what the Buddhists, you know, call uh, being in the now or a Zen moment. You know, it's easy to say that, just to be, but apparently it takes years of study, according to Eastern philosophers, to train your mind in that way. Uh-huh. And um, 
I think I found a quote where he addresses this. I don't know if this is from you or from him, but it, that this this procedure of suspending memory and desire is advocated only for the analyst whose own analysis has been carried at least far enough for the recognition of paranoid schizoid and depressive positions. Yeah, he said that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a quote from him. Mm-hmm. So even though it sounds easy to to suspend memory and desire and understanding, I guess it requires a discipline and a a maturity and a, I guess a capacity to um, tolerate or um, this realm of being with another person. Well, I think that's exactly it. It's being able to tolerate being there. You know, and that doesn't sound like much, but it is. It's a lot. To not, uh, you know, and being quoted, um, uh, Keats, who was talking about the man, the, what do you say, the man of achievement. And the idea was to be in mysteries and uh, uncertainties without any irritable reach fact or reason. Mm-hmm. That's what he said it basically is. So to just simply be there, not hoping that you know something, not anything. So to give you an example, very often, you know, patients will feel if there's silence, they'll feel some anxiety, some patients, many patients. And they'll say uh, to me, you know, what are you thinking? (laughs) And they don't believe me if I tell them nothing. (laughs) you know and i tell them if i were thinking something i would tell you what i was thinking but at the Mm -hmm. moment i'm listening so but it's very hard for people to believe that you're not thinking anything yeah it kind of reminds me of a related thing a patient of mine who came in the other day who sat down and he said and he seemed to be struggling and he said well my my mind is flying off in all these, he said, I think he said eight different directions all at once. And I felt kind of glad to hear that because I thought, you know, that was fine with me. But I guess he was struggling. He felt like he had to pick a place to start or somehow find the most important thing um, and or make sense of it for me. And I remember thinking, I had just been reading your book, so I, I this part about how there's this oscillation between PS, paranoid schizoid, and D, the depressive position. And the idea that there's, you know, when I first started studying Kleinian thought, I thought it was just a progression. You begin with PS and then you end up at D, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, I guess beyond kind of was it he reformulated this where it's it's a back and forth that's kind of necessary and healthy for all of us to to be going in and out of those. Um, and that's partly what leads to um, creative processes coming to life. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. I mean, um, yeah, so I would say with your patient, possibly, I don't know, we're just talking, you know, sort of without a lot of information, but yeah, it could very well disorganization of the paranoid schizoid position. And so, um, you know, basically to try to tolerate that 
That's all. You know, and to know that he may be frightened of it, it may be frightening, but that's what it is. A lot of, it's an experience of more than the mind can hold or make sense of. But as far as the, yeah, PS and D, uh, first of all, yeah, Klein's idea was that it goes from paranoid schizoid to depressive, and that's a development. You know, Meltzer thought differently, and he thought started with the depressive meaning, and not meaning having to do with depression, but a, a wholeness. And he was basing this somewhat on, on Bean's thoughts. But the idea that Bean had of... Um, PSD with the arrow going both ways. Um, that very definitely uh, is a new idea with him. And it is showing that that this is how the mind works, basically. That um, we all have the, these primitive organized states and if you can tolerate being in that because basically in the session that's what that's where you are at the beginning you're listening to more than your mind can make sense of and you have to be able to tolerate that in order to within that chaos maybe hear the one thing that can make sense of it all and that being's idea of the selected fact has to do with that that's something in all the uh, all the material and all the dreams and the feelings and everything that you're experiencing, that one thing will stand out that sort of makes sense out of things, around which the rest of the session begins to cohere. And then you have some sort of idea. Um, yeah, and he also said that that's what the patient, that's, that is what the analyst has to go through in the session, in every session. In order to come to an interpretation, it has to be PS to D. You have to start with that disorganized state, and then if you can tolerate it, you may be rewarded with a moment of clarity, which is the, the organized state. Mm -hmm. okay, which then so goes right back to disorganization very quickly. So you can't, it's not like you can just stay there like some mm -hmm. people like. Yeah, yeah. I um, it's making me think of this question and beyond about absence, um, which I th think I kind of have my can get my head around. But um, I'm I'm preparing. I hope for my next interview with um, a, um, the the editor of a book called The Greening of Psychoanalysis, which is about Andre Green's influence. Mm -hmm. And I know he was very influenced by Beyond and also Winnicott. Um, and the editor of that book, Rosine Perlberg, said that Green and, P and Bion led a shift in psychoanalytic formulations to include, quote, the centrality of the absence of the object mm -hmm. and its repercussions on the function of representation and symbolization, that somehow there's something about the absence of the object that then allows for the giving birth of representation and symbolization. And, yeah, so can you comment on that? Well, so you're talking about Bean's idea of the no thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So Bean talks about this 
as um, being the beginning of thinking. And so the basic idea of it is um, that the infant, you know, uh, at a certain stage, let's say, and if if there's been no, you know, not too much trauma, and the infant has the capacity to tolerate the frustration of the mother's absence. In that moment, the absent mother becomes. So there's a space between the mother and the infant, and there's a corresponding space inside the infant's mind where this thing called no mother can exist. And so he called it a no thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a space, but it it represents uh, the mother who's gone. And so that would, at that point, he was talking about that as the beginning of thinking, that there's a space for a thought to exist, and the thought is, you know, my mother's gone, instead of just screaming it out, the fear, whatever it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So is it related to, again, the without memory and desire, whereas analysts, we have to have this kind of absence where there's no, no, no Well, thing? yeah, in a way, we have to have a, we have to have a, yes, because it takes definitely tolerance of frustration because it is frustrating. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at a certain point, if you learn to tolerate the frustration and, and as I say, you're rewarded by it, the frustration doesn't seem so bad anymore, little mm-hmm. by little, mm-hmm. I'm talking about over years. And mm-hmm. so then it's like, okay, this is uh, an uncomfortable state, but not a torturous state. Mm-hmm. And because you know that it leads to something that is worth having, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and what did you say? Is it related to? I guess um, the the absence no memory of memory. Desire. Yeah. 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 So it is. It is being able to be in a space that isn't saturated, that isn't filled with so much mm-hmm. of what we already know that there's no room for a new idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I have so many other questions, but I know we're kind of heading towards the end of the hour, and maybe um, I'll just mention um, that th- there was some clinical material about a patient you called Helen, and uh, went on for th- maybe three pages or so, and somewhere in it, you mentioned that it was to hear this clinical material. It was necessary to to, to try to listen hear. Oh, and then I guess it's at some point to interpret that. But and it was about this patient who she was kind of by herself when she was with you and kind of doing everything by herself. And there were some kind of funny moments where you mentioned you tried to get in a word and um you you were um batted down kind of and and then you in Interpreted and to me, it it was very object relationally. It seemed like it was founded in object relations thought about how to help her um, become an analytic couple. I don't know, uh, um, find an internal good object so that she could be with you um, instead of being alone. And I just remember think wondering 
what how is this about o and hearing o Mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who maybe just be a more dyed-in-the-wool, I don't know, traditional object relations analyst. Yeah. Um, well, I can't, I can't comment on the, that case exactly because I'm yeah. not clear where we are with it. But um, it's not as if being a saying that the things that we've learned from other theories are not valid. It's not saying that. Mm-hmm. What he was calling attention to was the fact that people learn them, learn the theories, and use the theories on a, an intellectual or rational level, which has no power to get through to the patient. So the idea of O is that if you're in that state, you can pick up what is essential in that particular moment, not what you've heard, not because it reminds you of a theory, because almost any session, if you listen to it intellectually, uh, you know, it, there are theories in there that, it will, that will apply to it. But the point Bean's making is you have to hear the specific, unique thing about that moment. And it may very well be something ob- about object relations, or it may be mm-hmm. something about the mother and the breast. It may be absolutely anything. It's a, there's an infinite number of things it can be. But if one comes to it with a mind that is um, saturated with other ideas, then you're just passing on information. That would be, that would be a K-link in Bean's terms, knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, you're passing on information. And that may be interesting. People like it. But it doesn't get in at the level where things actually change. That's what Ian's talking about. Okay. Well, speaking of change, um, can you practice this way of doing analysis on a week with people who come once a week, or does it sort of really require uh, f- frequency more than once a week? Um, well, I mean, as far as being an analyst, you know, there, you want to have m- more sessions if you can. Um, my, and I know a lot of people don't think that you can do analysis or analytic type of work less than four or five times a week, a week. Mm -hmm. I think that my job there is to, as best I can, feel where the patient is and try to impart some truth to them about it. And that that may be, as you were saying, um, nutritive for the mind. I don't remember how you put mm-hmm. it. Food for the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I would do that with a patient once a week. Uh-huh. Well, we're about out of time, and so I did want to ask, are there other projects? What's your next project, or is there one? Um, well, <laughs> uh, I am working on a paper... I'm working on two papers now, and one is about addiction and uh, relating it to the traumatized infant or basically that an, an addiction is an addiction to a bad object. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so they want more and more of this, just as we see patients who are so tied to their p- parents who may have been psychotic or you know, dead 
in Andre Green's uh, mm-hmm. sense of it. Um, but they're tied to them. And so I would look at that as, I'm looking at that as sort of the source of addictions, that you want more and more of this thing which is bad for you, even once you know it's bad for you. Mm-hmm. And you want more of it because it, can, it will and cannot ever satisfy what you actually need. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm, I'm writing that, and then I'm writing something else. But the odd thing is... Um, <laughs> I can't remember what it is. And it's sort of because I do write in this, as well as practicing, I write in this state of O. If I'm writing a fictional piece or if I'm writing a psychoanalytic piece, it still Mm -hmm. comes from the same place for me. And so I write it in this way of kind of no memory and desire. It's not like, it's just that something wants to be said, me, and so I'm saying it. So often, after, after I've, I mean, I'm, I've, I think I've written about 20 pages of this other paper whose name I can't remember. Um, but it's as if, well, I don't know yet, because I don't know what it's about completely yet. You know, hmm. so I have to bring your mind to it, my rational mind to it, which I haven't yet done with that one. So, did you, I think something beeped out there, but did you say you have to bring your rational mind to it? Yeah, so after it's mm-hmm. after this sort of inspiration of whatever seems to mm-hmm. want to be said through me, uh, then I can go back and read it with a more, um, you know, judging eye, I should say. The mm-hmm. other, there's no judgment. I suppose that's part of it, too. There isn't any judgment if it's... Mm-hmm. And often I'll feel, well, I don't know if this is true or not. And then later I can see, well, actually, that makes sense or it doesn't. Hmm. Well, maybe that one will turn into a book eventually, and then I can interview you again. Yeah, um, absolutely. It very well might. <laughs> yeah, because they are of a piece. I mean, I'm writing much more about um, patients who and people who um, really don't have a sense of themselves. And this can be with people who are functioning at very high levels. And, um, but there isn't a core self there. Mm-hmm. And so there's a feeling of insecurity or not really knowing what they know or being false and, you know, mm-hmm. like a false self, but that it seems to be much more prevalent than we might like to think. Yeah, I think I, I think I just saw one of those <laughs> the, the yeah. last hour. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's something I think a lot of us would like to dig into. Um, yeah, yeah. It did sound a little more sort of in the Kleinian direction about this um, addiction to a bad object. Um, it sounds like your process on putting this paper together is Bionian in terms of this kind of uh, nonlinear, nonjudgmental way you're developing the paper. But in terms of theoretical foundations, it kind of sounds more Kleinian. Well, it sounds that way, but it's, uh, I think it has a lot to do with Fairburn. Um, mm-hmm. And because uh, his idea of a bad object was, I mean, he even said at some point, all objects are bad objects because it should be just an energy mm-hmm. of the self. Um, so that, but he talks about the bad object as being. Uh, one that has generally been idealized, internalized and idealized, so that 
in what he calls the um, what does he call it the moral defense mm-hmm. that the infant makes the parent good in order he preserves the parent's goodness so that um, but has to make himself bad in the process and so mm-hmm. the self cannot develop you know? but he's tied mm-hmm. to this bad but idealized object. Huh. Well, that's really fascinating, <clears throat> the idea that all ob- objects are bad. And <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe it appeals to the part of me that would like to live without objects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, would, part of me. well, it's a different way of not, it's not not being attached. <laughs> no. um, but yeah, he was, he, I think, was very interesting, uh, his ideas, and helpful. I find them helpful. Well, thank you very much thank for you. taking your time to talk about your book, and I hope I can talk with you again about another one. I hope so. 